Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit TobinBrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello everybody and welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, today we're joined by one of this country's finest high-performance managers and sports science pioneers. Darren Burgess is now the not-so-secret weapon behind some of Australia's best athletes and its most successful teams. But Darren has also spread his wings overseas at some of the world's biggest sporting brands with stints at soccer giants Liverpool and Arsenal. Not too shabby for a self-confessed failed athlete. Darren, g'day. Hey, thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah, cheers, mate. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for that uh, nice intro. It's good to be here. Your resume we will unpack, obviously, but it is a, a lengthy one, and you don't sit still for long, do you? So I'm glad to see the Adelaide Crows office in the background there, because for a time there, I thought we were going to have you in between jobs there for a moment. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I'm, I'm day five or six here at, uh, at the Crows, and day seven or eight out of quarantine, so uh, it's all all new, but uh, I'm excited to be here, and, and uh, hopefully uh, the plan is to, to not leave here for a long time so and, and, and make this home so because I have jumped around I'm, I'm guilty of that a bit but yeah that's there's, there's probably reasons for each of them a wildly successful year with Melbourne of course but you've joined the Adelaide Crows when do you actually get started with all of the players at, at your disposal uh, over there so the players come back next Wednesday so a week from uh, a week from when we're when we're filming this uh, and uh, yeah I'm looking forward to it um, we've got a good chunk of time before Christmas to, to get into it and um, and then they'll have a, a good break over Christmas and, and then the usual sort of hellish January period for, for AFL players where they're training in the heat and, and having, having long sessions from people like me. I suppose this means that the, if it hadn't already the premiership glow unfortunately for a man in your position it, it's well and truly worn off now Melbourne of course so you joined Port Adelaide after their flag in 04 so this was the first time you've been involved in a, in a premiership I mean what can I ask it might feel weird answering this at Adelaide HQ but what does it mean for the man who is in charge for preparing the players physically there must be some significant satisfaction w- w- that comes with them standing up and seeing them stand up over the over a long season yeah to be honest Sam it was really um, it, I really wanted to enjoy the moment and and uh, um, appreciate the work that we as a department put in because uh, as you know and everybody knows it was a really unique situation that we found ourselves in in terms of the hub and over there and in terms of um, having to uh, play one game in 28 days and so that what it means for us is that we'll just be out we're able to provide goody with um, a good squad to pick from and to to give the club the best chance of success particularly in such a such a unique environment so we, we took a lot of pride in that and uh, you're right it, uh, the premiership glow came off very quickly uh the, the friday after the saturday i was in a crow's polo and um so yeah and i know that you know the trophy has gone round to staff and players house so it's a bit bittersweet that i don't get to have a look at it but hopefully the, there's a few things planned uh, later on down the line which i'm hoping to get over to melbourne for i guess this next question is pretty relevant at the moment as you prepare for the crows players to, to report back for duty but trust and believability how important is it for a person in your position to have that from the players and the coaches yeah, I guess I'll start with the coaches. 
first. Um, one of the things, and I'll use it as, as an example, one of the things that, that the coaches and in particular Goody did incredibly well was just said, you know, we're not even going to talk as a coaching group about um, body composition or fitness or whatever, because we're going to trust that the high performance team will deliver us that. And, and they did, and they were good to their word. So um, I think that's really important to have the the, the coach buy-in. What's probably more important is the players buy-in because they are entrusting their careers with you. Um, and, and so we take that really, really seriously. And um, because, it, it, you know, you know as well as I do in, in the media, you could we could list 20 players now who could have had incredible careers, but injuries brought them down. Um, and uh, yeah, so we certainly take that seriously. It's a, it's a really crucial part of, of any high performance tro- program that the players trust you. There are a lot of people outside of the club that want to be working with players. And, and so their players are fed a lot of information outside of the club. Um, so the fact that they can come uh, to us and say, what do you think of this? I've heard this. My mate says this. Um, it's really important uh, that, that they take our word for it. You're leaving or you left Melbourne for family reasons, of course. And some people listening today might not know this, but your kids, Harry and Millie, of course, remained in South Australia when you were over here in Victoria. Borders were shut on top of that. That must have been, for you, Darren, I mean, incredibly tough. Um, and, and I guess a significant part of you is that you're really potentially sad about leaving the Demons, but um, your personal situation with the family... Um, so that must have been difficult for you to endure for a couple of years. It was Sam hardest two years of of, uh, of my life in many ways um, uh, to have the the kids um, un, uh, not uncontactable because there was plenty of FaceTime calls. But um, yeah, you just couldn't see them and hug them and be involved in their life, which I had been for the previous you know seven and eight years for Harry and Millie, you know, every day and every minute. So uh, yeah, it was really hard. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, and, and probably what made it hard with the D's is we. we we built up such a connection as a club. Um, the hub environment the previous year in Queensland um, uh, meant that you were around players for 80-odd days. Um, we were players and staff, and so you built up that great connection. The wonderful thing about the, the guys there is that they understood that family's first and they understand that family's first, and so... Uh, uh, the messages I received of support from coaches, players, president, um, CEO was was incredible. So um, hopefully it was a win-win for, you know, we were able to show the players and, and the staff the connection between hard work and, and success. And um, and then I I got to come back to, to the Crows a little bit, early, come back to Adelaide a little bit earlier than, than perhaps what the plan was. Do the kids broke for the Crows yet? They are staunch Port Adelaide fans, Sam, <laughs> um, which is, uh, there's a number of reasons behind that, but they have told me, Many times, I think Melbourne Demons are the friendliest team they've ever come across, uh, and they were born in Liverpool, UK, so they've experienced a few teams. Um, but they said that because the D's players were just incredible whenever they came over to visit. So they said we wanted Melbourne to win because they're the friendliest, but we go for Port Adelaide. So we'll work on that. <laughs> so where do you start with the Adelaide players due to come back next week? As you say, I'll start trickling in. Where do you start with a new organisation? What's your first message to the players when you get in front of them? Um, we, we generally talk about. About the philosophy, like I guess my philosophy of pre-season training and and what and, and their expectations. I think sometimes, uh, certainly in the past, I've made the mistake, and maybe others do now, of, of not educating the players as to what's in front of them and and what they can expect. Um, so I'll start with that. That it's a footy first program, and most players are happy to hear that. Um, probably where you can manipulate that um, is is just around um, the intensity of training, the um, the combination of conditioning and 
footy. And um, so I try and um, let them know what's in front of them, um, give them an outline of the pre-Christmas period and we tend to work in little blocks. And then, um, yeah, hopefully they, they come on board when they see that there's no sort of secrets, no um, no trickery involved. You just be up front. This is what you can expect. And then you hopefully deliver that. I mean, because the game has changed over the years. Every, every game does. Things evolve. I guess in your line of work, how have your philosophies perhaps changed from when you started to the here and now? And am I right to say one of the biggest takeaways is from your point of view, the players can be pushed more than they and what we have thought historically, you know, the art of building resilience, I suppose. Yeah, Sam, that's, that's, I guess there's two aspects of that. The first one is how have I changed it? I've become more interested in the footy than the X's and O's and the data and things like that. You know, one of my favourite players uh, of all time in terms of footy is Robbie Gray, watching him do what he does. Um, and yet his uh, physical running profile isn't that of Travis Boak or, you know, yeah. uh, Ed Langdon or those guys. Um, so, But he could impact a game as good as any player in the AFL. So I've probably learned to respect the footy component a little bit more, whereas in my early days, it was all about the running numbers and the GPS numbers and things like that um, but having been lucky enough to be exposed to a whole range of different sports around the world just from visiting and, and things like that honestly what AFL players go through even in the depths of January uh, when it's 35 degrees is absolutely nothing compared to um, Tour de France cyclists English Premier League players in the middle of winter um, you know, uh, many Olympic athletes um, so, yeah, I, I firmly believe that we can push body and, and in particular in this case, AFL players more than probably um, probably what others do or, or, you know, what others believe in. So does this mean the Crows boys are in for some pain in a week's time? I think they are, mate. Yeah, I think they're in for... Uh, look, again, it's a footy-first program, um, but, yeah, there'll certainly be some periods there where um, where they're pushed beyond perhaps what, what they've been accustomed to. You're listening to This Is Your Journey, and it is a big thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family owned business since 1934 up next Darren Bird just takes us back to the beginning and a love of sport you're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals visit tobinbrothers.com.au Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And we're chatting with high-performance guru Darren Burgess. Darren, where was home for you as a kid? Sydney. Uh, yeah, a lot of people sort of, uh, certainly when I came back here, uh, welcome back home and no, very much... Uh, first 30 years of my life was in Sydney and that's where my family is and that's very much home. And am I right to say you grew up on a diet of cricket and rugby league, perhaps big dreams of fame and fortune? There was, there was a promising early cricket career there, wasn't there? <laughs> there was, yeah. You've done your research. Some would say those who played against me who may be watching this would say no, there wasn't. Um, but uh, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. I followed rugby league, Canary Bulldogs, uh, mad, passionate fan, and um, but played cricket. That's what I was obsessed with and played a lot and, and got to a decent level at a young age and, and just wasn't good enough. Um, once, I, once I got a bit older and just not good enough but I enjoyed it I loved it um, and uh, yeah it wouldn't take it back I was going to ask you did luck conspire against you a sliding doors moment a career ending injury or in fact was no, it you just weren't good enough <laughs> to be honest and it's, it's not a bad story I, I always knew that I wasn't quite good enough and I played um, Wayne Holsworth some of you guys will remember super fast bowler and uh, I was wearing a helmet 
for the first time. So this is a long time ago when helmets weren't that popular, but I knew I was coming up against him. So I bought a helmet on the Wednesday and yeah. I was opening up and he bowled a bouncer at me and I did not move and I got wedged between the grill and the top of the helmet, literally wedged there. And I sort of got it released and chucked it back to him. He just laughed at me. I got out pretty quickly after after that. And I remember walking off the ground going, I reckon that's that's probably, I was only 20 or you know, and I just I reckon that's probably enough for me. Light light bulb moment. So yeah, yeah. the sports science the sports science world we we know now looked a lot different back then. Of course, you, you were going to be a PE teacher. That was where your career was headed, wasn't it? Yeah, I I, um, I took up sports science because it was at a at a campus that was about five minutes from where I lived and um, in Sydney. And um, I thought I'll do that three years there because it's nice and close. And um, yeah, do an extra year as a dip and be a PE teacher. That's what I thought I, I would do. You fell in love. Any jobs yeah, at all. Yeah. Yeah, but and you found out in an interesting way because you got your PhD through Australian Catholic University, of course, and we wrote letters back then, didn't we? I mean, there was no email. We're talking sort of 94, so the old snail mail. And upon graduating, you put Australia Post to the test big time. So was it 92 <laughs> letters to every professional soccer club in England or has there been mayo put on that story since? No, that's that's absolutely true. 93 clubs I sent letters to and got three back about uh, three months later. Um, it was pretty bloody exciting too, getting um, the letters back from. I got Leicester, Leicester City, Wrexham, and Scunthorpe, and they were all in the lower leagues at, at, uh, in, in, at, that, at that stage. Um, all saying thanks, but no thanks. But the rest didn't didn't bother posting back, which I wouldn't have been. You know, wouldn't have been expecting it. But yeah, so that was the dream was to work in the Premier League uh, in and around graduation. So I take it you've been the letter approach to get your foot in the door at the Sydney Swans as a fitness assistant part time. How did that go? Yeah. yeah I, I spoke at a conference um, during my honours year uh, in 96, I reckon it was, and um, uh, because Sydney were finding it tough to get people involved in their club um, who, you know, might be able to help them because, you know, nobody came from Sydney, you know, they were all relocating. Uh, The guy in charge said, look, are you interested um, in coming down and helping us out with our fitness? And my job for the first year there was to... um, Every Saturday morning, Rocket Ed liked to take the boys on a long run through Sydney, uh, as much to show them the sights of Sydney because they're all, at, you know, living elsewhere or came from elsewhere around the country. And so I would, I started off in the, the Shire, um, which I was familiar with, took them for a run through the National Park, about 10k, and then worked my way up every Saturday morning up the coastline, uh, showing them different different running tracks around Sydney. And I was basically the hare out the front. I was caught pretty quickly by. Stu Maxfield and Paul Kelly and, and those guys, but I managed to stay in front of a few of them um, and, and point them in the right direction. So that was my job in the first year with the Swans, and then it sort of evolved a bit from there. Yeah, and then came Parramatta Power in the old NSL, so combined with some video analysis as well. But then when that league, of course, collapsed, you fi- found yourself at Port Adelaide late 2004. So Power just won the premiership, as we said earlier. A, a guy by the name of Mark Williams yeah. is the coach, of course. Now, you're coming into a successful environment. And w- when you do that as a, as a newcomer going back to 04, did you try to instill change straight away and implement your way straight away? And and if so, was there any resistance to that as, at a successful club? Uh, it's fair to say, Sam, I was told in no uncertain terms that <laughs> I was to run the program <laughs> that, that was run the previous year. And Andrew Russell, who's a very well-known, very successful fitness coach, and he's had a lot of success at every club he's been at. Um, but, yeah, Choco uh, and Phil Walsh basically said, no, 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 it might be a different name on the door, but you are to run that program. So, um, 
yeah, the first year it was very much the, the previous program. And then after that, I guess I earned the respect of the, the players and coaches and, and tinkered with the program after that and, and sort of made it my own, I guess. And just as an aside, uh, Darren, when it, when it comes to the AFL and players coming off straight after a goal that enrages so many people, can you clear this up for us? I mean, why does that happen? And is this actually your fault? Did you start this? No, I, I hear that. Uh, and we talk about that a lot. We fitness coaches and sports science nerds and whatever else we get called by the media. But essentially, especially <laughs> nowadays, the only chance to come off is if I try and take a player off when there's not a goal, you yeah. can imagine the furor that goes on in the coach's box when they see a player run off. Um, so, yeah, during a goal is basically the only time. But I'd like to think um, that... I've got a pretty good feel for it. And I, I get yelled at a lot by uh, sports scientists sitting next to me when they say, you know, that let's say Cozzy Pickett, he needs to come off now. Uh, and I, I would t- often turn around and say, no, he's just kicked two. There's no chance he's coming off now. His defender's crapping himself. Uh, I'm, I'm keeping him on. We'll get him off next time. So I understand the frustration, but it's not always as it, as the commentators say it is. No, of course, of course not. So you watch the World Cup religiously. I mean, what's your earliest World Cup memory on the on the small screen at home on the couch? Uh, it was Mexico um, yep. uh, in 82 with my dad 82. watching it. Uh, and watching the Italians, yeah, do really well there. Paolo Rossi and those guys and the just the efficiency of the Germans. I just absolutely loved it. So 82 would have been my first first memory, but I've watched every single World Cup, just about every round match live since then. Um, so, yeah, that uh, watching that with my dad was, was one of my best memories growing up. So when the Socceroos chance comes up in 2007 uh, as fitness and conditioning coach and head of sports science at the FFA, you, you, you would have taken all of uh, 0.2 seconds to say, Yes, I imagine. Yeah, it was tough because we just made the grand final and obviously got absolutely belted by the Cats uh, with yep. Port. But Choco and John James, the CEO, it had let me do some work with the, the National Olympic team who were in town in Adelaide um, doing some work. And, and, and they got to chat with Graham Arnold and their coaches, so they, they got some benefit out of it as well. But, yeah, when the opportunity to work full-time, to live in Sydney, to work with the Socceroos, to get to travel around the world, yeah, I went to Choco and said, look, um, you know, um, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. I want to take it. And, and he said, if you help us find your replacement, um, then, yep, we'll, we'll do that. And so that's what happened. And, yeah, moved up to Sydney pretty quickly after that and and uh yeah had had the best part of three years with the Socceroos which um was even considering the premiership with the D's the the Socceroos was probably the career highlight going to the South Africa World Cup with them the D's was was incredible and I wouldn't want to denigrate that um at all but I guess being a soccer guy and and the staff and the players that we we took through that tough Asian qualifying campaign was just no one had done it before we hadn't had to qualify that way before um, was yeah it was a great experience and Pim Verbeek would be appointed manager soon after I think you joined and then you get to work with obviously the likes of Viduka, Kuehl, Cahill, Lucas Neal I guess the the tail end of the so called uh, golden generation were, were you pinching yourself early on there early on I, I remember uh, it was the A League players in my first sort of camp for the first week and then. And, you know, Tim and Harry and uh, Dukes and those guys flew in late. Yeah, just the uh, probably the increase in quality was the main thing, just watching them train and the way they went about it. I just thought, wow, this is, as a soccer lover growing up, this is pretty special just getting to watch them train. So then getting to travel with them and, and um, work with their domestic clubs overseas and things like that. And, and then in between tournaments, one of the great things about Pim, he said, in between tournaments, go wherever you want. Um, 
and you know we'll we'll fund it as long as you bring the information back to the national team um so myself and phil coles the physio got to to travel all around the world and and um and just accumulate information and, and knowledge and, and and hopefully get to share that with the rest of the team spending time with luke wilkes here in moscow and um you know and and uh, josh kennedy in japan and those sorts of things was just uh, it was surreal it was great yeah, amazing, absolutely amazing. Uh, you're listening to This Is Your Journey, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You can catch them online at tobinbrothers.com.au. After this break, Darren Bird just takes us inside the wealth, the power, and the prestige of the English Premier League. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with renowned high-performance boss Darren Burgess. So, Darren, Liverpool isn't just a big club in the EPL, of course. They're, They're one of the biggest brands in world sports. So how did you find yourself there, as you were, from 2010 to 2012 as the head of fitness and conditioning? Uh, well, uh, Peter Bruckner, Dr. Peter Bruckner, who's well known in sports medicine circles around the world, really, particularly here in Australia, he got asked to go in there and, and do a bit of a recce because they, uh, a bit of a review, they suffered a lot of injuries and, and the CEO sort of said, look, you know, we've got the talent here, but we haven't won a title in a while. We're losing our best players. So he went in there, did a bit of a, re- of a review and sort of suggested some changes and, um, excuse me. Uh, one of those was in the fitness area and he put forward a few names and I was one of them and uh, I'm quite certain they wouldn't have picked me without Peter and wouldn't have had anything to, you know, to do with um, an Aussie um, without him. So, um, yeah, he would have suggested myself and Phil Coles. And so we basically left. Uh, we lost, uh, we'd beaten um, Croatia in the uh, Serbia, I think it was, sorry, in the last round of the World Cup. Um, yep. Uh, last game of the World Cup and um, two days later I was at Liverpool interviewing people because Rafa Benitez had been sacked and taken 18 Spanish staff with him and um, they had no coach. Uh, had an assistant coach in Sammy Lee and that was a Friday we landed in Liverpool by Tuesday. I was taking the first training session in Liverpool with an assistant coach and, and a skeleton staff and I'm out there trying to show them different drills to do for training so that was pretty surreal uh, as the preseason went on the, the world cup players started filtering back um you know the england and spanish players spain had won the world cup and so they started coming back in and uh roy hodgson had fortunately been appointed because that meant uh, there was a bit more structure and a bit less pressure on me to come up with training drills every day and um yeah and and we, we were there at a pretty tumultuous time as you probably know and there was a change in owners and the team wasn't as successful as, as certainly they are now. Um, but we, um, yeah, we set, set in place some really good um, systems and processes that are still there now. And, and uh, yeah, it was, a, it was an incredible experience going through that. That time uh, I had three managers in the sort of two and a half, three years that I was there. And four, I guess, if technically, if you include Benitez, because, uh, yeah, he was part of the employment process. Yeah, I was going to mention, it was hugely volatile two and a half years that you chose to spend there. But while yeah. you're there... 
there were, while you're there, the Reds spent, what, about four times an AFL club salary cap to bring in one player in the form of the Uruguayan striker, Luis Suarez, of course. So the difference in money and wealth is just enormous from our little code down here. Managers get sacked in five minutes. Did that ever threaten to become overwhelming, particularly in the early days? Yeah, I guess, Sam, I reckon it would have been, had I not, had I gone straight from Port Adelaide to Liverpool, it would have been. But having the exposure with the Socceroos uh, enabled a bit of a soft landing. Um, and and I'm certain uh, Tim and Harry helped out by calling a few of the Liverpool senior players and saying, you know, these guys are pretty good. Um, because otherwise, had we gone in there without their support, you know, there would have been a, fair, a healthy amount of scepticism in in some Aussies coming in to change things. So so it didn't really become overwhelming. And, and I think if it does, sometimes the players pick up on that, that you're a bit of a fan and not there for the right reason. So they certainly challenged, challenged us early in particular, and we had to earn their respect. But I'd like to think over time that we did, um, even though we had to learn completely different ways of doing things um, and just almost forget everything that we'd learned in the AFL because it just doesn't apply over there. You're just playing games every three days and and training really hard in between that with no days off and, you know, learning yeah. different cultures and ways of doing things which which we hadn't been exposed to. So, yeah, it was, it, it was different. And speaking of fans, I mean, as good as Melbourne and Port might be and the Crows historically, I mean, they don't have thousands of people in the dead of night trying to catch a glimpse of them at the airport or 2,000 people lingering or, or sneaking into hotel foyers. So it's, it's a bit different over there now. Yeah, it is. It's um, uh, we had a pre-season tour of Asia and in uh, Indonesia, Manila, I think it was. We had sixty-five thousand at a training session, and um, you know that's just just outrageous. And um, so, yeah, every team walk that we went on, there was just people everywhere. And um, yeah, every airport, as you say, we I think we landed in Singapore at four a.m. and there were just people everywhere, and that's just that they get used to that. But it was a bit different for us. You mentioned Robbie Gray in our code, so let, let's get this on the record. Who do you take? Because <laughs> they were all at the peak of their powers at Liverpool. Stephen Gerrard, Fernando Torres, Luis Suarez. Who, who are you picking? I would take probably Steve, Stevie. Uh, Gerrard was just um, he had that perfect combination of he'll be offended by this, but Aussie tenacity and grit and fight and leadership and um, as well as just incredible skill, just incredible skill. So um, it'd be pretty close between him and Suarez because um, Suarez was just off the charts with aggression and skill. And obviously he had his troubles around that time. Uh, it, it enabled me to get pretty close to him because he was always suspended. Yeah. So I had to work pretty closely <laughs> with him. But um, uh, yeah, he, he was... From day one, he just transformed that club uh, in a major way and, and probably Roy Hodgson doesn't get the credit that he should have for bringing Louise into into the place. Now, it's hard to uh, it's hard to imagine to tailor a program for 44 individuals or whatever it is on an AFL list. You know, it can't, it can't be a one-size-fits-all approach, I'd imagine. But how do you run things at an EPL club like Liverpool when you could have nine to ten different nationalities in the dressing room. Culturally, you would encounter all sorts of things you wouldn't have envisaged, wouldn't you? Yeah, that, that's probably the thing, Sam, that um, I guess you don't anticipate, you don't train for, and you hear people talk about, oh, in the NBA, it's hard because the NBA players are used to doing this, but you you might have one Brazilian or Australian or 
whatever on an NBA team, very few on an NFL team, but in, in football, soccer, which is the world game, it was extraordinary. Um, you know, I could tell you plenty of stories about how I messed up by just assuming a certain way of doing things and the Spaniards was coming and saying, no, 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 we don't have dinner at seven, we have it at 11 and, you know, we don't wake up at eight in the morning for a team walk. No, we don't do that. And, you know, they won the World Cup. So it's Fernando Torres or Pepe Reina or these people saying these things to you. So you don't say, no, 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 no. But in my university degree in Sydney, this is how we were taught to do this. So um, there was no Twitter or, you know, any online learning, you know, uh, at all at that stage. Um, so, um, yeah, it was it was tough. But uh, I, what it taught me was um, to communicate in different ways, um, to, um, to uh certainly respect other ways of doing things, um, which which can be problematic for Aussie sports science traditionally because we're generally, we think we're at the forefront of things. But um, I remember spending some time with Lucas Laver in Brazil doing his knee reconstruction. He, he got back playing EPL, which is far more dynamic than AFL six months to the day that he did it. Now, if I tried to do that in the AFL, commentators you know, uh, other other football clubs, uh, other medical departments would lose their crap. Yet in the Premier League, a central midfielder like Lucas Lever, Brazilian international, far more dynamic than, you know, than Robbie Gray or Jarman Impey or Chad Wingard or Cosy Pickett or far more dynamic. And yet, you know, six months to the day. So it was a really good learning process to learn how to do different things and, and be exposed to different challenges. And, and you just had to go in and listen more than you spoke early on. Just quickly, the Spanish mealtime discovery uh, was made in rather humorous uh, fashion, I think, on a, a pre-season <laughs> tour to, to Switzerland. Can you quickly recount that? Uh, yeah, I had a whiteboard and I put up, this is the schedule for tomorrow. It's, you know, training at here, lunch at here, blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, I had dinner at seven o'clock, perhaps, and uh, Pepe Reina got up and didn't speak to me or anything, just rubbed it out and put 11pm dinner. And I he sat down and I could feel people were watching what's this new kid going to do and it's Pepe Reina, he's just won a World Cup and he's a massive personality. And so I rubbed his 11 out and, you know, you could feel the shock and the horror and just put 7pm dinner, 11pm dinner in brackets, Spanish, uh, close brackets. And he just looked at me and nodded and that was it. So, um, yeah, that was that was interesting. <laughs> It, it ends at Liverpool, of course, and um, you return to Port Adelaide, and um, your side uh, is one of the fittest, if not the fittest, in the comp, and you base it on a, a pre-season tour of the UAE and a lot of philosophies around heat training, and, and it, it's wildly successful. But after a game in 2017, your phone rings um, unexpectedly, and on the other end of it is the then-Arsenal CEO, Ivan Gazidis, who's now at AC Milan. Surprised, Darren? Oh, might be an understatement. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, the night before, I'd been at a, a property in Oakbank and had phoned my accountant that day and said, um, how much can I afford to spend on this property? Uh, I'd sort of planned to live on a big acreage and um, and just be live happily ever after and I'd get a couple of horses and, you know, and, and that was it. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a massive surprise and I didn't quite believe it at the start. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was late one night. Um, turned into be a, a pretty important phone call. It did, because before you knew it, you're in a Nice hotel opposite Arsene Wenger. I mean, this is a surreal weekend spent in, um, on the Cote d'Azur there. What, what actually happened? And um, was it as much uh, probing as, as one can do of another? Arsene was, was pretty keen to find out if you were the, the real McCoy. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was actually Champions League final night 
And uh, yeah, I'd left. Uh, we played Hawthorne on a Thursday night at Adelaide Oval, and uh, the Friday morning I was on the first flight out, and I got back to Adelaide Monday morning by 9:30 uh, a.m. Um, but yeah, I was uh, landed. Uh, RCN had some meetings, I think, with Kylian Mbappe. In fact, as it turned out, um, and uh, to try and lure him to Arsenal, and so I went for a run along. Yeah. <laughs> I got there and I was absolutely exhausted and I went for a run along the strip there in Nice. Um, to, it was in the middle of summer, so it was magnificent. just thought, this is a good start to the weekend and um, came back and met uh, Arsene and, and Ivan. And then Ivan left and just left me with Arsene and he just asked me every football question that he could possibly ask because I don't think he particularly... I don't think he believed that this guy from Australia um, knows much about football. So he knew an incredible amount about Australian football. Um, uh, he was just in, uh, one of the most intelligent people on all aspects of, of life, really, that, that, that I've ever met. And uh, wow. so, yeah, we, we, uh, we spoke all night. Then we watched the game, went to dinner with him after the game. Um, I was falling asleep during the game, which I, I just was just telling myself, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, you know. You're watching football against someone you're trying to convince you know about football with <laughs> and, <laughs> like, and I'm drifting off, you know. It was, um, so, yeah, and then the next day uh, we met again for breakfast and I was on a plane by, by 10 a.m. Um, and Ivan just said to me, keep your, keep the Wi-Fi on the plane. I'll send something through to you. And I had a contract to mull over on the on the plane on the way home. I think they were interviewing maybe four or five people for the role and, and I must have done something right, I guess. Um so yeah, that that was that was that meeting. It was yeah, pretty surreal to think about, but um, yeah, it was it was a great experience. Indeed, and the contract was waiting for you by the time you you landed. We're, we're talking to Darren Burgess on this is your journey. It is thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. We might take a little break now, Darren. We'll come back. We'll we'll tie off on Arsenal and a few other subjects right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934, and Darren Burgess is our guest today. Darren, the Gunners were having a really nasty time with injury around the time of your appointment. There was a lot of frustration there. Was there, I don't know if distrust is the right word, but was Arsene still wary of you when you got um, to the training facility? I think your office got plonked right next to his. Um, What were those first sort of uh, weeks and months like? Yeah, that, that was that was tough. There was distrust uh, amongst the coaching and and the staff that I was brought in to um, supervise, manage, lead, whatever term you want to use. So that was tough. What did help was that aspect that you just mentioned. My office was next to Arsene, so he saw that I turned up when he did. I left after he did. Um, I spoke football a lot with him, um, was able to, you know, the, I've told this story a couple of times, but there was a lineup outside his office from people. And I, I remember on, on day four or five, I thought, what, what are these people? Is, is he not in there or something like that? And I had to ask him about a training session coming up. And I just knocked on his door and walked in and he was sitting there drawing up some drills. And I said, oh, by the way, you know, player A, B or C he's back from leave or whatever I had to go. And they were just waiting for him to come out. Such was the revere that he was sort of held in. 
uh, to speak to him. But I guess the Aussie-ness of me just went, oh, I need to ask a question, so I'll go and do that. And, yeah, we had a conversation on his last day and, and he said, um, I didn't I didn't trust, I didn't believe in your process, but I now know that your process and your methods, um, his exact words were, I'll never forget them because it was a nice thing to say, um, the players have a level of physicality that I haven't seen them have before. If we had have done this seven years ago, we would have won more championships. Um, so it was a really nice thing to say on his uh, his second to last day in the job. So, um, yeah, that, that gave me a lot of uh, satisfaction that the hard work had, had, had resonated with one of the, you know, the, the most prolific managers in, in the game. And, I mean, we talk about coaches being under pressure here and how tough it is, and of course oh. it is. But what about what about Wenger's final months? I mean, 22-year stint, of course, he was under, what would you say, global pressure and global scrutiny, yeah. wasn't he? And just enormous at the time. It, it was like he had built that club and, and we probably don't appreciate it over here because you know clubs are built by boards and the AFL tips in money and but he had single-handedly turned that club around into the force that it had been and that it was and built the training ground built the stadium uh, oversaw every aspect of it and yet the fans were turning on him you know, incredibly quickly. And we had people spitting on him over over us on the bench. And we'd turn up to games in in Eastern Europe and, you know, fans were booing him. And, it, it, you know, it was just extraordinary, the pressure that he was under. And yet you just would not know it. He just held, held himself because he believed in a certain philosophy and a certain way to do things. And he just held true to that. So uh, the pressure was just was as intense as I've seen on any human, you know, in, in sport, certainly. So domestically, you're about to come into a very important time, which we started off with, an AFL pre-season with Adelaide. But I wanted to ask you, Darren, is the AFL pre-season too long? Yes. I won't even hesitate on that. Um, it is absolutely too long. My theory, Sam, and I'll just jump on a soapbox if I can for 30 seconds, make the season longer and the pre-season shorter. The players... TV gets more money, fans get to see more games. Um, people think the season is too long as it is, but I think that's because the preseason is way too long. So everybody is fatigued about footy by the time you get there. Ask any player and they will say, yes, we would rather play more games and train less. So have a six to eight week preseason. That's all that you need. Have uh, more games. Um, I know there's problems with cricket ovals and things like that, but I'm pretty certain we, we can we can circumnavigate that. Everyone gets more revenue, more games, less less preseason. Um, yeah, I, I I'm not sure that there's any negatives to that. That's that's my opinion anyway. Don't hang on. Don't get off your soapbox just yet. Stay up there if you can. So just on this, you and your high performance brethren. I mean, they ask the AFL consult players, they consult coaches. You guys run the programs. You're in charge of performance. You ever get a phone call from uh, League uh, HQ to get your opinion? Uh, you'll get me into trouble here, Sam. Um, uh, everybody else has a union. We don't. Um, yet we, uh, you know, the perception around is, you know, these fitness guru terms and just running. And no, no, no. We are in charge of the welfare of this group. Um, and we put players first at all times, not running or conditioning or any of that sort of stuff so 
it's probably a little bit frustrating. I have had some conversations uh, in the hub um, with Brad Scott, so hopefully with him in charge, things might change because he has an incredible lens on it. But I would like to think that um, people would ask us as a group, um, you know, in terms of the future of the game from this point of view, because what we showed last year is playing games every four days is not a problem. It's not a problem yeah. um, for the players. Um, they would rather do that to a to a player, men and women. They would rather do that and have less preseason. Hey, have you got a strong opinion on rotations, which obviously came down this year? Where do you sit with that? Yeah, I think it could probably come down further. If I'm honest, um, I, I think uh, it, it's. It's not impacting the game massively from an injury point of view, but I do think um, that it's probably unnecessary that there's that many rotations. Um, I think we could bring it down and the game wouldn't be affected too much and our better players would be out on the ground more. That that would be, be my view. Um, there'd be some with opposing views who've had more success than I have in the game, but that, that's my view. And just on injury, what are you, in your opinion now, in twenty going into 2022, what, what's the number one threat when it comes to players, you know, surviving and thriving in the AFL? Is it the dreaded hammy? Is it the old OP that rears its head? The syndesmosis you can't control, but gee, didn't we see a lot of them uh, this year? Yeah, I think with the, one of the things that lessening the rotations would do would just slow the game down slightly. So the collision impacts, I still think that the concussion collision um uh, you know, the sharp change of direction stuff are the more meaningful uh, and uh, impactful injuries on both the game and, more importantly, the players themselves. So if there is a way to just slightly open the game up a bit and slow it down a little bit, I'd be interested in that. Certainly hammies are more common than groins, but in terms of, you know, the really nasty, impactful injuries, I think we probably have a duty of care to the players to look at ways of reducing those concussion in particular. Stephen May was a great story in the grand final with the, the <laughs> hamstring and, and you, you ran you and he ran the gauntlet with that and because it was a grand final and you won it, it became public. Um, have you made risky moves like this in the past and um, how many hidden injuries have you, you run the gauntlet on? Um, yeah, that was probably the most prolific one that we consciously did. So uh, in the past, players particularly... Uh, some soccer players that I've worked with overseas have been scanned and and had similar level injuries and said, no, nope, I'm playing, I'm playing, and have, have got through. Um, but, uh, yeah, probably that was, yeah, the most, uh, I guess, high-profile and um, high-risk, high-reward sort of uh, um, scenario that we as a department and a football club put ourselves in. I don't want to get in trouble here, but before we were just about out of time, we spoke about the best athletes, if you like. What about some of the worst? What about some of the ones who, okay, they might have come to life when the game and the whistle and the sirens blowing, which yeah. is awesome, but let's be honest, come January and February, these guys were, were really struggling. Can you give us some names? Yeah, Nathan Cracker used to stop during the 3K time trial and just have a bit of a break and then go again, <laughs> and he's one of my favourite people that I've worked with, and the history shows he came back from... You know, came back from retirement and did really well. But, yep. yeah, he used yep. to literally stop. And I thought, what am I looking at here? And the other other favourite story was Gavin Wanganeen. He would run the 2K loop here in Adelaide on the inside of the track about – and the, the boys would run 2.2K and he would run about 600 metres 
um, on the inside track and Choco would say, just wait till February. Just wait till February and he'll be fine. Yep. And sure enough, in February, he did things which were just incredible. So, yeah, that yeah, they were, they were pretty funny, those guys. Uh, and they were an eye-opener for me. Darren, thanks so much for donating your time today, mate. I mean, what a heck of a journey you've had. It's got a long way to go yet, of course. And they say that behind every great athlete is an exhausted parent, but but there would clearly also be an exhausted high-performance boss. So well done on all you've achieved. Best of luck with the Crows for the upcoming season, and, and thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks, Sam. Really appreciate it. And thank you for joining us. Also, you've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online. You can find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting story. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.